Now, I had started this series on God's standard for us. Uh, it was interrupted last week. And I guess interrupted in part in terms of a tragedy, uh, in, in our view, at least a great loss to us. I don't know that it's a tragedy. That's a wrong way to put it, I think, because God certainly is overseeing and knows what he is doing. And whatever God does is for the good in the long run for us who obey him and serve him. So for us to look upon a death as a tragedy is not necessarily correct. We have to submit our will to God and commit ourselves to him to do what he wishes and accept what he decides. And we have to see God in our lives. If we don't see God in our lives, and we don't see his direction in everything that is happening with us, then what's the point? We must see God in what we are doing. Now, people in other groups feel that they see God in what they are doing, whether it be preaching the gospel to the world, whether it be whatever their goal and purpose and focus is. They feel that God is in that. Well, now, I wouldn't want them to feel that he wasn't. Everyone should be able to discern and find a relationship with God where he can feel that God is truly in his life. Now, God is working somehow, some way, somewhere, and he may be working here and there somewhat with some groups. He has shown he is going to work directly and specifically with that daughter of the church that he chooses to be the fairest of them all, Proverbs 31 and other scriptures. But we, apart from everyone else, must see God working directly in our lives. If we don't, then we'd better scratch around and find him and invite him to be in our lives and make sure he is a very integral part of our lives. So, even though there was a loss to us, and there is much grief, still in all, I believe that there is a purpose to be learned there. And I don't find it ironic at all, or maybe that is the right word, I don't find it that it doesn't fit at all, but that happened just as we were considering God's standard for us, and about to start into Matthew 5, and Christ raising the standard for the New Testament church and for us. I'll explain a little more as we go on. Let's begin in chapter 5, because here Christ puts together everything from the Old Testament and everything to be basically spoken hereafter in this one teaching session with the disciples. And that's as far as we got last time we addressed this. We read... Chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up to a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. This was not to the world at large. It was not to the multitudes. He got away from them, and this teaching was for his disciples. He has not offered the new covenant to the world. He was not offering it to the multitudes. He did not address this to the multitudes, but to his disciples. Because the standard that he set and the standard he preached here 
is the standard for New Testament disciples, for true believers. It's for us. It isn't for the world yet. It will be when His Spirit is offered to them in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, but not now. This is for you and for me. That's to whom it is written. And He opened His mouth and taught them, His disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we can move on to the next verse. I think not. What does poor in spirit mean? Does that mean that you don't have much of the Spirit of God? No. We're instructed to be filled with the Spirit of God. His mind, His thoughts, His actions. The way He lives is the way we are to live, so that we are to be filled with God. Christ living His life in us and through us. So that when people see us, they see God. When they see us, they see Christ. Now there's a standard for you right off the bat. What do people see when they see you and me? Do they see God there? And as I've said before, can Christ and the Father see themselves in us? Can they look down at us as individuals and say, there is my character, there is my mind, there is my thought process, there's a little microcosm of me. Now, none of us qualifies where they could say, there's one that looks just like me, but we'd better begin to look a lot like God, hadn't we? It's a process. It's a growth process. We needn't feel guilty at this point because we all come short of that standard, and run around saying, oh, woe is me, I'm not just like God. I, I don't mean to be laying a guilt trip on us. I mean to be giving us the standard whereby God desires, or whereof God desires to have us reach. And none of us are there. No man has been accepting Jesus Christ. Everyone else has fallen short of the standard. So, what do you do? Lower the standard because we can't reach it? See, we can just keep lowering the standard till we get down to where you and I are so that we can feel comfy. See, I'm as good as the standard. Isn't that what they do in school? They keep lowering the standard so that all the children can feel good. Now they are saying that teachers cannot even correct papers with red ink because a child who sees red ink on his paper will feel bad. They will damage his sight. So they're going to use purple ink to correct papers. Well, now, after that goes on for a while, when he sees purple, he will feel bad. So, you see, we keep lowering the standards. And we are creating a generous generation of illiterates. Can't spell, can't read, can't write. Not much. Semi-literates at best. I read an article recently that gave information about how it was, say, roughly 1850, when there was an 84 to 90 percent real literacy rate in America. And children could read what only people with masters and PhDs can read today. Books came out that were bestsellers of the day. Of course, the population was smaller and not everyone had money to own books and so on. 
But the book called The Last of the Mohicans was very popular. It was a number one bestseller in 1850 or whatever. And children, little children, were reading it. And that book is written in such an intricate way with such huge words that most people who have been educated in high school and even in college today could not read and comprehend that book. But grade school students then read it and understood it. Since that time, there has been a deliberate dumbing down of Americans in the schools to make us peasants to the New World Order. It has been a planned process. When you send your children to public schools, they are part of a process that is deliberately set up so that they will not be highly educated when they come out. It is deliberately done. And it is working. Read anything written by most young adults today, and it will be full of spelling errors. The grammar will not be correct, and in some cases it's almost unintelligible. Yo, man. But that's where we have come. Do we just keep lowering the standards until we get down where everyone is comfortable? No. It's the wrong way to go. We keep reading God's Word, which sets the very highest standard for human behavior, godly character. And we keep working toward that. And it requires work. Hard work. Just as when students were truly being taught to read, to write, to spell, to be educated... They had to work at it. Schools have become mostly social clubs today. The standard has dropped, and on purpose. Now, Christ, after several thousand years of human endeavor, came to this earth to raise the standard, to give more help through his mind, his spirit, himself, that we might grow thereby to strengthen us, to make us higher than we were. And that's a good thing. Seems difficult, but hey, anything that's worth having is worth working for. You're given things easily, doesn't mean much. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, whatever the poor in spirit is, means that those who attain that are blessed of God, and they will inherit the kingdom of God. So perhaps we should examine a bit what poor in spirit is if we want to be a part of the kingdom that's coming from heaven. And be sure that we qualify. So if we are not to be poor in God's spirit, but to be filled with it, what spirit are we to be poor in? the only other one that we have available to us, and that is the human spirit, the human mind. The spirit that is in us that makes us different from animals, but also creates the capability to be all too human. 
to be, in a word, satanic. In other words, here is God's standard, way up here, and Satan's standard is right at the bottom. Polar opposites to what God would have us be. Now, we, as human beings, and we as professing Christians, desire to be like God up here rather than Satan down here. But the problem is, we're somewhere in here in between. I mean, Satan looks at us, and he can see himself in us, but maybe not entirely. God can look down upon us and see himself in us, but not entirely. So we're somewhere in that range between Satan at the bottom and God at the top in our activity and our thinking. So that is not to condemn us. That's just the state that we've been in since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and every man has sinned ever since. But you don't say, oh, well, okay, that's where I am. I'll stay there. No. You spend your life seeking to be like God. So, pure, poor in the human spirit, or you might even say in satanic spirit, because he reacts upon human nature, is what we need to be. What constitutes satanic and human thinking normally? The normal, as born, human mind in Satan's world is carnality, that is, humanity. It is enmity against God. It despises God. It does not want to do the things that God says to do. That's just the way we are. We want to rebel. We're full of selfishness, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, pride, all those things by nature. And you can see it in little children. Just almost from the time they're born, they begin to exhibit human attitudes, minds, and tendencies. And if you spoil them, they truly become spoiled. They become selfish. Indrawn. Wanting whatever they want, whenever they want it. That's just the way that it works. We've all seen spoiled children, haven't we? All children but ours, of course. It's just kind of the way it works. Now, how do you come to have the attitude of being poor in spirit. You see, it's a matter of recognizing our spiritual poverty. Contrast what God says will be a predominant attitude at the end of the age in Revelation 3 about Laodiceanism. We think we're fine, rich and increased with goods, have need of nothing, we have everything we need to be what we ought to be. In other words... We are comfortable with and happy with our level of spirituality. That's what we have become. Now, God is blowing the church apart to destroy our feeling of comfort, our feeling of being warm and fuzzy and I'm okay and you're okay and we'll all be in the kingdom of God. He has taken away our comfort level. And he is trying to get us to see that we weren't fine. We weren't poor in spirit. We were proud in spirit, spiritually speaking. We thought we were full of the right spirit. 
And yet we weren't wholehearted for God. We were seeking other things, sometimes much more uh, hungrily than we were God. You see, he brings this out first. It is the very first lesson, very first subject of this dissertation to his disciples. If we are not poor in spirit, and you could use a synonym for that, humble. If we are not humble and teachable, we think we have what we need, and our opinions are right, and therefore we don't need anyone to teach us, then we cannot learn. Because pride keeps us from learning. It gets in the way. It blocks the channel whereby we might be able to learn. Because if you think you have the best knowledge, you have the best everything, you did the best research, you have no opportunity to learn. Now, if you're humble and teachable, someone can bring you something, and you will consider it, and your pride won't get in your way, and perhaps you can see. Now, I could use Passover as an example. I think that, by and large, this group had a somewhat humble approach to that. Now, I'll tell you, I wrestled with it because it was something diametrically opposed to what I had always believed. And I had to go over it and over it and over it and over all the Scriptures and back over all the Scriptures and even back over the things that I had believed before and books written about them and, and articles and so on in order to make sure that it was correct. Then, as I put it in the letter, I had to eat crow or humble pie or however you want to term it. We had to be willing to accept something different than what we believed and thought to be right and correct. Had we reacted in pride and vanity, all of us, we would still be doing Passover wrong and Days of Unleavened Bread wrong. That's where we'd still be. Now, I believe we gained a great deal in knowledge and capacity and ability to obey God by humbling ourselves before the Word of God. See, that's what you have to humble yourself before. Not someone who brings you something, not your own mind. You have to humble yourself before these words. Because poor in spirit means I'm willing to set aside my views, my ideas, my thoughts, and accept God's thoughts. So when we began to see in Scripture this, 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 and this, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to have to change. And most all of us who were in this group at that time are still in this group and now see clearly what the Scriptures say. So that makes us Wonderful. <laughs> no. It just means that at that particular time, on that particular subject, we were willing to humble ourselves. To be poor in the human spirit that would have said, hey, we've always been right. The pride would come up, the spiritual pride. We don't have need of that. We don't have any need of anything. We understand Passover. Don't even bring that to me. 
No, we can't be that way. We have to recognize our spiritual poverty. We have to see ourselves falling short so that we're not judgmental of others, but understanding of the human frame. That's partly what Christ came to do, was humble himself in the eyes of everyone and set an example, despising the shame, as it says in Hebrews. He despised the shame that was thrown upon him. He came to show the example, even though he was God on earth, he showed a meek and humble attitude. And when he was accused, he said not a word. That is poor in spirit. What do we do when we are accused? Why now you don't tell me that? We get defensive immediately. How many people do you know walking the face of this whole earth today that if you brought something to them that you felt they were doing that was a wrong way of thinking, a wrong way of acting, how many people do you personally know that would say in a heartfelt, sincere way, thank you for bringing that to me. I will work on it. How many do you know that would thank you for being perceptive enough to see something in your character or actions that they thought needed adjusted and you would just thank them for doing so? That is very, very, truly rare. Most of us will immediately begin to show how we are right and they are wrong. We will not be humble. We will not be poor in spirit. But our reaction is, you can't tell me anything I already know. You're attacking me. You think there's something wrong with me, and I know there's not. See, that's human. Now, maybe we don't get that dramatic with it, but that's our attitude. Sometimes people won't say a word, but boy, the red starts coming up and they begin to burn. Because we do not like to be criticized. We like to be right. And certainly, as Christians, in our estimation, we have to be good ones. And we don't want anyone popping that balloon, do we? No. That shows we still have human pride. And maybe we can't see at the moment what they are saying. You know, they could be correct. If only we could see ourselves as others see us, we've heard all our lives. And sometimes they see things in us that are in disarray. Perhaps sometimes there are imputed motive, imputing motives that are not there. You know, people can make unfair judgments, and they do every day. So, instead of becoming defensive, even if we cannot see at the moment what they are bringing, at least we should be poor enough in spirit to say, well, I'm not sure I see that, but I'll think about it, and I'll pray about it, and I'll try to see if that fits me, and if it does, I will go to God and do all I can to correct it. How many of you have ever, think back now, how many of you have ever, in your lifetime in the church, had anyone give you that answer when you took something to them? 
Was that a maybe back there? And that probably happened hundreds of times. No, on rare occasion, someone might react that way. Now, I don't want to be unfair here. There are times when you can take something to a husband or a wife or a child and they will react humbly. And sometimes we can talk with other Christians and they will react humbly. I, at least I hope we're working toward that standard. But I'm giving a broad view of normal human reactions here. Our first reaction is to defend ourselves and not to admit that there could be anything wrong. Now, we will admit in general terms, oh, I'm a sinner and I know I've got problems. But we don't want to admit the problem that's being brought to us that moment. That's where the rub comes. It's easy in general terms to say, I'm not like God yet. But it's hard in specific terms to admit a specific problem. That's where the rub comes. Now let's examine some scriptures about this. And I want to start way back in Deuteronomy. We've recently gone through this in Bible study, but uh, it's pertinent here. And just because we've looked at something once doesn't mean we ought not to look at it again and apply it in different circumstances and even, indeed, to remember that it's there. Deuteronomy 8, All the commandments which I command you this day shall you observe to do. We cannot pick and choose. We're to live by every word of God. We're going to see that in just a moment. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the eternal swore to your fathers through Abraham and on down. And you shall remember all the way which the eternal, your God, led you these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, before he led them out of Egypt, he took Moses as an individual out into the desert, out into the wilderness, and there Moses stayed, learning to be humble and meek, and he became the meekest man on earth in those 40 years. I suspect that Moses had a certain amount of pride before he went out there, because he had been raised as an Egyptian. He had been raised at the apex of the Egyptian culture and government. And with that comes pride, vanity, ego, and self. It just comes with the territory. So God took him personally out into the wilderness to teach him for 40 years that he might be humble. And then he sent Moses, a man who was at that point humble, to lead Israel, who were proud and stiff-necked, out of Egypt because God had promised to Abraham that it would happen. But God had made them abject slaves in Egypt, and yet they were still not poor in spirit. I mean, it became apparent as soon as they got across the Red Sea that they were stiff-necked and rebellious and proud and did not want to accept God's way, God's word, God's instruction, or God's care, or trust God with their lives, with their thirst, if you will, with their food. That's life. They weren't going to do it. 
So he kept them out there 40 years to humble them, to see if they would obey or would not. Verse 3, And he humbled you and suffered you to hunger. You mean God would cause somebody to go hungry? Well, yeah, he did right here. He let people go hungry for a purpose. Now, God loves us, and He doesn't want us to go hungry, and we'll see more of that in this sermon, so-called on the Mount, a little later on. But He wants a meek and humble, teachable attitude first. It's the first thing that He began to try to teach Israel, what He'd already taught Moses. And the very moment that Moses broke character on that, God gave him a dire penalty. That's really what striking that rock was all about, was pride. God said, speak to the rock. Moses lost his temper and struck the rock. That had to do with pride and with vanity. And it was not poor in spirit. It just wasn't. And God said, you will not go into the promised land, Moses, I trained you for 40 years to be poor in spirit and humble. You've brought these people out. You are to be an example of humility and meekness before them. And when you strike a rock like that and do something I told you not to do, you are placing yourself above me. I told you to speak. You struck. Who did you put first, God or Moses? He put Moses first. He put his temper tantrum first. He put his self-pity first. He put his anger first. That pride and anger lifted him up above God in his estimation, in his actions. That's why the penalty was so great. Moses, I'm trying to teach these people to be humble and poor in spirit. And you're countermanding my purposes. You're not going to the promised land. Now, is this important or not? An attitude of being poor in spirit. He suffered you to hunger, and he fed you with manna. Now, he let them get good and hungry, then he gave them manna. What was that designed to do? To teach them to trust Him. To believe Him. Neither did your fathers know, a man of which you did not know, your fathers didn't know it, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the eternal does man live. That was the very purpose of that exercise in supply and demand for food. That is repeated in Matthew 4.4. 4. It is repeated in Luke 4.4, 4, New Testament. That is the standard God set clear back here with Israel. And the fault was in them, not in Him. And He reiterated it, underlined it, underscored it, taught it in the New Testament, and gave His Spirit that we might be able to do that very thing. It is the standard. Live by every word of God. Do I need to turn and read that in Matthew 4? 4? You've all read it. This once should be enough. I don't think we have to go read all three pieces, places that it's mentioned. But three times is pretty good emphasis 
from God. To quote that very same thing. That's the standard. Every word of God. We can't pick and choose. We have to find the right principles, the right meaning of every one of his words and inculcate them into our thinking and life. Your raiment waxed not old on you, neither did your foot swell these forty years. Walking in the sand, clothes didn't get old. Their feet remained pliant and supple. You shall also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the eternal your God chastens you. Just think about that. Now, we find that again where? Hebrews 12, New Testament instruction, that God chastens every son whom he loves. It's all brought forward into the New Testament as part of the standard for us. Now, what should our reaction be when we feel the rod of God on our back? When we see the church being scattered, split, disagreeing, arguing, fighting, ignoring each other, attitudes one to another... Doesn't that feel like chastening from God, especially when there's about 1,400 Scriptures more or less in the Scriptures that say that very thing about this end time? That this is from God. Well, he says, let your heart think about that. When things aren't going well, you need to look around and see what's not right. Remember when Achan sinned? And Israel began to have troubles and plagues. Did they say, well, that must be the Philistines' fault. That must be society's fault. No, they began to look within their own ranks to find out where the sin was and to get rid of it. And when they got rid of it, things got better. So, when we see trouble in the church... We need to find the source of it, change it, and things will get better. Now, God says, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to get to soon? To seek righteousness like you would seek silver and gold. We have a world that is about to panic seeking silver and gold. What are you and I going to seek? Righteousness or silver and gold? Which will do us the most good? Who holds the king, the keys to the kingdom of God? Now, as an investment, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with silver and gold as, as an investment for a short time, pillage thrown in the streets. But I still say, if I have a loaf of bread and you've got a gold coin, we're not going to swap. You know, an ounce of gold came to be in the Reich worth over a trillion Deutschmarks. One ounce of gold, a trillion. And it may get to that point in this country soon. An ounce of gold might be worth a trillion dollars. But it won't be worth one loaf of bread. That's the difference. When we see trouble, what do we do? We have to humble ourselves before God, recognize that the paddling, the chastening is coming from Him, and then turn and begin to honor our Father in heaven. Why does the end time Elijah 
or why is he commissioned to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children of the children to the fathers? Now, God's head is turned away from us. We know that from Scripture right now. And we want him to turn back and smile on us, which he says will happen. But he is going to keep the pressure on us until we turn with our whole heart and seek righteousness with our whole heart. And we have to be humble enough to be willing to do that. Now, God really put Israel through it, didn't he? That is the way God does it. So when we see God really putting the church through it, ding, the bells, the lights ought to come on. Wow, God's doing that. Therefore, there must be something He desires of me. Does a child make that connection? When you bend him over and start applying the paddle to his behind? Does he begin to make a connection here? Dad must be upset with me somehow, and I need to find out how, and I better get it corrected, so that'll stop. Now, there are people who don't like that analogy, but it's not mine, it's God's. It's right here in Deuteronomy 8, and it's in Hebrews 12, New Testament. So whether you like it or not, that's what's happening. And the longer you resist, and the longer you resist even that idea, the longer the trouble will last. You know, with my children, as long as I heard rebellion in their cry, I kept paddling. And when I heard that rebellion and that cry turn to fear and repentance, I stopped. Now, had I stopped before the attitude changed, then the kid would have gone to his room and pouted. What have I gained? Nothing. Just made him more rebellious. I spanked him to the point of making him more rebellious. Or I took privileges away only to the point of making him more rebellious. But then we sometimes have trouble living tough love. So we quit because of, oh, poor child. I don't want to hurt him anymore. We remove the penalties before the attitude changes. Now, God is not going to remove these penalties, brethren, until our attitudes change. He's just not. When he sees humility, when he sees poverty of spirit, where he sees commitment and willingness to do anything he says, whatever it is, the pressure is going to continue. When we... Fully submit, the pressure will come off, and God's smile will turn upon us. That's what the Scriptures tell us. So the sooner we change our attitude, the quicker this thing will turn around. Guaranteed. Now, when you see that attitude change in that child, and those tears and those cries are of repentance, and the rebellion is gone from it then you can stop and you can turn and hold the child in your arms or sit them on your knee or if they're too big on the couch beside you and then you can talk love. Then you can talk what we're going to do together. Then you can talk how the relationship's going to be and how much you love them and how that that hurt that hurt you worse than it hurt them. Yeah, right, paw. But the attitude is humble and it's meek again. Then they're willing to listen. 
But as long as that ridge of rebellion stays there, you're not gaining anything. Now, that doesn't happen necessarily so that there's a permanent overall change. With children, we have to keep at it. And every time there's an infraction, there has to be a penalty until they realize that wrong behavior always, always, without fail, will not work for them. And God wants us to realize that disobeying Him simply will not work for us. And when we get that lesson fully ingrained and we commit ourselves totally to Him, the pressure will come off. And He will smile and we will have a warm, symbiotic, loving relationship. So what did He do? He chastened his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore shall you keep the commandments of the eternal your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. We see that in 1 John 2, 6, to walk as Christ walked. To walk in his ways. It is a way of life. It isn't a pretend thing. It isn't I'll get in line with some of his rules so that I can get the blessings. We have to be committed totally to living and thinking the way God thinks and lives. And to fear him. That's the beginning of wisdom. Isn't a child beginning a little wisdom when he begins to fear that when his parent says, do this, and he doesn't do it, or don't do that, and he does it anyway, when he begins to fear and know that bad times are about to land upon him, he'll begin to get a little wisdom, maybe. Sometimes it takes time and consistency, but they begin to get some wisdom. They begin to fear that if they do the wrong thing, their whole world is going to come apart. We did the wrong thing, brethren, and our whole world came apart. Now we have to start doing the right thing. I think we're on that road, but we have to become poor in spirit, willing to listen, willing to commit ourselves. For the eternal your God brings you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive and honey, a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness. You shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig brass. When you are eaten and are full, then you shall bless the eternal your God for the good land which he has given you. Now, isn't that precisely where we are poised right now. We have been in a spiritual wilderness now for at least 20 years since Herbert Armstrong died. No direction, no focus as an entire body of Christ. We've broken into many different daughters. We've had troubles, trials, tribulations, deaths, sicknesses, uh, poverty, uh, anger, bitterness, all the above and more is what we've been experiencing. But yet, you and I have gone through the Scriptures. We've been through Isaiah, Jeremiah, most of it, uh, the Minor Prophets. All these prophecies for now, Haggai, Zechariah, about how in this end time, in these latter days, not the millennium, but in these latter days, God is going to give us a good land with a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. You read that in Isaiah and Jeremiah. You read that in Haggai. Zechariah. They're there. 
He's going to do it just as he told them he would do it. Now, he led them out of that 40 years of wilderness and humbling into a good land. Only all those who had rebelled and would not be poor in spirit died there, and their children went in. And they, too, were instructed to walk before the Lord their God the way he would have them walk. They didn't obey very long either. God needs to know it's permanent with us. He needs to know that as with Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham was willing to slice Isaac's throat, God said, now I know, Abraham. I'm not guessing. I'm not misreading your heart. Now I am absolutely convinced that you were committed entirely to me, that you would kill that son of promise. It took that much. Abraham was tried to the very last instant to know that his heart was absolutely correct and right before he could become the father of the faithful, before Isaac could go on and have children and begin that process which would make Israel as the sand of the sea. Had to be absolutely ironclad. Before God can put you and I in his kingdom, he has to know that we are absolutely committed to his way of life that we will not rise up in pride and do something different than every word of God. Because the opposite of poor in spirit is proud in spirit. And we find ways to justify doing things, thinking things that are ungodly. We know they're wrong, but we'll find ways of going ahead and thinking them or doing them in spite of that and then making ourselves feel better about it. No, we've got to repent and turn entirely to God. Hard to do. Verse 11, Beware that you forget not the eternal your God and not keeping His commandments and His judgments and His statutes, which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and we did that in Worldwide, we ate and we were full and we had fine buildings and college campuses and jet airplanes and on and on and on it went. We ate and we were full. And lest you think wrongly about that, yeah, it was those at the top that had those airplanes. It was them that had to find homes. Blah, 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 blah. I didn't have them. Well, you did. We're all a family. And we bought into and were part of that. And we were proud of that worldwide work. And when they would come to the Peace of Tabernacles and produce this film that would be shown all over the world, showing Herbert Armstrong and come off the planes and the, the uh, young ambassadors singing and all that, we felt a glow and a warmth because we were a part of what was going on. Now the bitterness about the things those guys had we're not a part of that warm glow we had sitting at the feast watching those feast films. We were part of it. We bought into it. And we bought into the pride of it. And we were not poor in spirit. We thought that God had blessed us and we were wonderful above everyone else on earth. Do you stink when you sweat? Are we so different than anyone else on earth? Are we so much better that we don't 
stink when we sweat? Are we so much better that we can't die? Have we learned anything about that recently? Is there an attitude that God is working on in us? And is He capable of allowing a man who was a servant, who was poor in spirit and humble, was not seeking office, but was just simply a servant, to die to let us know that we had better become that way? Is it an accident that that happened just before we started into Matthew 5 with the build-up to it? I don't think so. I see God in our lives, brethren. I see God in what we are doing. If I didn't, I might as well go somewhere else, right? If I can't see God here, if I cannot find God here, then I had better go somewhere and find Him. We must find God, and we must see Him in our lives. If we don't, we're of all men most miserable, because the kingdom of heaven will not be ours. Did God provide this place? Did He set His hand here? Did He bring us here? I believe He did. I believe we have a commission, a job, and a purpose here. Otherwise, I would go away. But I believe God wants us here. I believe He wants me here. I have to see Him in my life and in your life. I have to see Him in the conditions around us. I see a world that is falling apart before our very eyes right now. It's economic stability. It's system. There are system, systemic collapses beginning to happen that are going to get much worse in the next few months. And they are worsening by the day. What God has been doing to you and me in the church, He is starting to do in the world. He wanted us to see that that spiritual wealth we thought we had was our own pride and vanity, and it wasn't truly His righteousness in us. That we thought we were full and fully clothed and didn't know we were naked and blind and wretched. He's trying to show us that. That's what poor in spirit is really all about, is to recognize our spiritual poorness, our poverty, and that makes us then what? Humble and teachable. That's his purpose. That's what his purpose is in the church. And that's what his purpose is with Israel and the whole world. Now, how many scriptures, and I, I won't even try to go there, are there in this book about the day of the Lord and about man's pride, man's way, how many scriptures? I looked up just one word in the concordance, broken. Started reading down through it this morning. I will break you. You will be broken. You will be humbled. Speaking to the nation. Speaking to the world. The whole Bible has that theme. 
you have not, since Adam and Eve walked the earth, been humble and meek and obedient to me, and I'm going to show you people who God is. That's what this whole plan is all about. Now, does it make any sense that He wouldn't show you and me that first? Because we are His disciples today. And that is known because we love one another. That's how it's known. Now, we're not perfect disciples yet, and we don't have perfect love, and we still fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We are not poor enough in spirit that we are completely willing to turn loose our way, the world's way, Satan's way, and live by every word of God. We're not there yet. So the pressure is still on. All right, let's pick it up again in verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and we've built not fancy homes here compared to what the world's building now with their million and two and three and four million dollar houses, or those that they value at three or four hundred thousand. Now, the house isn't worth that much, but the dollar is falling against anything good. So it's worth more dollars, but it's still just a house. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses, and we thought we'd built some nice spiritual houses in ourselves, and if someone does criticize your spiritual house, you, how quickly do you get defensive? There's a test of poor in spirit. How quickly does your pride rise up? How quickly does the color rise in your face when you're criticized in any form? Are you poor in spirit? willing to accept and hope that you can learn from anyone else? Or do all your senses tend to defend? There's a test for you of being poor in spirit. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, that's pride, self, and you forget the eternal your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents, scorpions, drought, where there was no water, who brought you forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers knew not. For what purpose? That he might prove you to do you good at your latter end. And lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. I'm a self-made man. He tells us in Isaiah 54 that those he begins to bless with incredible blessings, and that's what Isaiah 54 is about, right after what Christ went through in chapter 53, and right after he tells us to come out of Babylon and to wake up in chapter 52, 54 is the return of blessings, and it says their righteousness is not of themselves, it is His righteousness. We were self-righteous and worldwide. Now we come have to become truly godly righteous. And godly righteousness is rooted in an attitude of being poor in spirit and humble, not in pride. But you shall remember the eternal your God, for it is He that gives you power to get wealth, 
that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if you do at all forget the eternal your God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. If we have idolatry, we will perish. What is idolatry? Anything that comes between us and God. Colossians 3, 5, I think it is, says that covetousness is idolatry. When we covet something, covet means that's something that you're not supposed to have, but you want anyway. That is covetousness. And that, in turn, is idolatry, because you are putting that which you desire ahead of what God tells you is right. So you're putting yourself ahead of God when you covet anything. When we put ourselves ahead of God, God's word, God's commands, God's instructions, that is idolatry. When we make an exception for ourselves, well, you know, just a little bit, or this wouldn't be really wrong, or after all, you know, I'm me, so therefore it'd be okay for me, just this once, or whatever way we justify it. That is idolatry. Because we're not living by every word of God, but by our own desires. And that comes from human pride. Someone who is poor in spirit, or recognizes their spiritual poverty, would say, oh man, God said don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't think that. And I want to be like God, so I'll submit to that. I'll put that thought out of my mind. You think... Being poor in spirit is easy. I know when my Methodist grandmother would read these scriptures to me when I was a little child, she got this sweet, honeyed voice. And she wouldn't say blessed, but blessed. Because in the South, blessed is much better than blessed. Part of the culture. Well, that was West Texas, but still south of the Mason-Dixon. But they think that this is easy. That Christ gave it, He gave the Sermon on the Mount. It was such a beautiful thing. It was so lovely. It was so sweet. And it made everybody feel good. Now give us a break here. When He says, get rid of pride and be spiritually poor, Humble in mind. That is not easy. Pride, when you try to swallow it, is about that big around. And do you know how big your throat is? About that big around. That's why you have to push it down. That's why the blood goes up in your face when you have to swallow pride. And when somebody brings something to you and says, you know, I think you need to change this, your swallowing reflex gets really tight, doesn't it? And it's really tough to choke it down. That's not poor in spirit. That's pride. It's the opposite of humble. It's an anonym, not a synonym. Sometimes it's getting to be. I didn't mean to spend a, 
all day in Deuteronomy 8. But let's notice the main points of this chapter. I brought you out here, I put you through all this to humble you. What did he characterize them as? Proud, stiff-necked, unrepentant, belligerent, rebellious, unwilling to do what he said. That is pride. Pride in self that does not want to submit to God. The opposite of that is humility and meekness, poor in spirit, where we're willing to accept what God has to say and do it. Many of you, before you were brought into the church, before you were baptized, went through some trials. And maybe right after you were baptized, you went through some trials. Think back on your life. Went through some pretty tough times. Tough decisions to make. We had to give up jobs sometimes over the Sabbath or holy days. We had to give up mates because of adultery. We sometimes then gave up children with the mate. Sometimes we lost our homes because of the financial crisis that that required. We sometimes suffered sickness that before we'd run to the doctors all the time. And we began to slowly, with small steps, try to walk in faith and trust God in an area that God says is his ballywack. And it was hard. There are a lot of things that we had to change. We had had a lifetime of eating a certain way. Now we couldn't eat unclean anymore. And we had enjoyed those things. For some people, that was very hard to give up. We learned that maybe we were polluting the temple of the Spirit of God by sucking cigarette smoke or cigar smoke or... Excuse me. And it was hard to give up those cancer sticks. But they were polluting the temple of God. They could cause all kinds of problems, health-wise, heart attacks, cancer, emphysema, all kinds of problems. So we had to give that up. It wasn't easy, was it? Real trial for a lot of people. I remember one time, a man that didn't think anybody knew he smoked. All you had to do was walk up to him and talk. And you knew it. Besides that, he had brown-stained fingers. You know, it's not too hard to figure out. But he thought he had it hid. Well, he wound up in a veteran's hospital. I think I've told you this story before. Wound up in a veteran's hospital sick. And I walked in the hospital unannounced, wanted to find him. Well, they had a big common room there and people standing all around, you know, veterans and so on in various forms of death. And there he was, had his back to me. And I kind of walked around. I could see he's holding a cigarette. He'd smoke it every little bit. So I kind of walked around and came at him from the front. And he quickly tucked his hand behind his back so I couldn't see his cigarette. Oh, how are you? Blah, 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 go on and on. And he's holding that hand back there. And he held it there. And I just kept talking. I didn't say a word. Just kept talking. Pretty soon it burned his fingers. <laughs> 
<laughs> he tossed it out. Cat was out of the bag. Well, the cat was already gone. He just didn't know it. But to him, it came out of the bag at that point. Now, he'd been a member of the church supposedly for probably 20, 25 years at that point. Never had given that up. I don't know whether that little episode ever helped him or not. I, never, I didn't say a word about it. I just kept talking like he hadn't got burned his finger and thrown it on the floor. Never said a word. I, th- I think when the fire reached his finger, he probably got the point. I didn't need to stand there and drill it in. We all went through trials. Some of us thought that we looked prettier with our fingers and toes and lips and noses and ears painted. Didn't we? And for some, it was a true trial to take that off, to realize it was vanity and pride, and that's what it was rooted in, to make self look better in our eyes. Very, very difficult to give up those things. Some are still struggling with them. But if we're poor in spirit, you know, I can't find a scripture that says the 11th commandment, thou shalt not wear makeup, thou shalt not paint thine toes, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that, and gives you the whole thing. But I can show you scriptures in Isaiah 3 and many other places that cast it in a bad light. Now, if we are poor in spirit and we're humble and tremble before the Word of God, then we would say, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something there. I just wonder if He's trying to tell me something there. I wonder what it is. <laughs> you know, to us, God's hints should be our command. Whatever we think might please Him in our conduct and thinking should be our command because we fear and tremble at His Word. So, He doesn't have to say, you must do this. All He should have to say is, that doesn't look too good. That's kind of like the world. You know, if He just makes a suggestion, we should be so determined to please Him that that suggestion is good enough for us. It shouldn't take any more than that. Some people have to say, you have to have a thus saith the Lord, and it has to be written in so many words. You shall not. But he's put a lot of words here, and he said we're to live by all of them. And if some of them are in a form of a suggestion that he kind of is against this or kind of is for that, then we should be so sensitive and so responsive to him that would say, end of that story, that's gone. That should be enough for us. He looks to a man who fears and trembles at his word and is contrite of spirit. That's in Isaiah 66 too. I was going to read it, but I just quoted it. To this man will I look. Contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. Is that the way we approach God's word when we open it to read it? Do we have a certain fear and trembling that comes over us that we want to be sure 
and read this right and be sure that we please God. Now, if there's an area that we are unsure, should we bend over backward to do it anyway to be absolutely sure we please God? Do we approach it that way? Or do we say, well, I'm not so sure that really means that. So then we can justify doing it the way we want to do it. We need an attitude adjustment. See, that's what God is doing right now. This, this that we are going through in the church is simply attitude adjustment hour. So that we change our attitudes toward Him and toward His Word. And so that any hint He gives is something we will respond to. That's what he's after. What about with your mate? Would you not rather hint at what you would like or how you would like them to be or how they would like to treat you, you to treat them and them you? Would you prefer that your wife come to you and say, Look, you big dumb jerk! This is what I want! Or would you prefer her to be able to say, Honey, could I, would you, I'll be sweet. Which do you prefer? Turn it around. Would you like to be able to come to your wife and say, Honey, it would really please me if you would do such and such. Instead of having to say, I'm the law. This is my batch. Do what I say or else. Which helps the relationship the most? If we're responsive, loving and gentle and kind with each other, and we're seeking to please the other, we shouldn't need two befores over the head. Should we? But sometimes we do both directions because we have to learn to live together in love so that we become like Christ in the church now Christ has made a lot of suggestions in this book he has written you know he didn't just give us the ten commandments and say that ought to be enough he's written a whole big book here to explain to give nuances to give his feelings, to give his thoughts, to give his desires, the things that he would like. Everything is not a thus saith the Lord in this book. There are a lot of suggestions in here, a lot of thoughts that we need to consider and understand, a lot of proverbs to consider that regulate human life and thought. Now, if we don't respond to that in fear and tremble before his word, what does he do? Well, he drags out the club. That's what he's done recently. He's drug out the club. He's beat the church pretty hard with it. Well, let's say the paddle, not the club. Now, what's he about to do with the rest of the world and the rest of physical Israel? He's going to get out the paddle or the club. And he's going to beat this world over the head until every knee bows. 
He tries to do it gently. He tries to give us space to repent. He tries to get us to the point where we're poor in spirit and willing to listen to Him. And if we don't, then He escalates the heaviness of the punishment until we submit and commit to Him and tremble at His word. That's what He's doing. Now, obviously, Israel was pretty hard-headed, weren't they? They had to wander through snakes and scorpions and serpents and lack of water for 40 years. How long are you and I going to have to go through this? Well, we're working on 20 years now, 1986 to 2006. How much longer is it going to take? Is it going to take 40 years? I hope not. I don't think so. I think he's capable of getting us turned around quicker. Maybe he'll have to lay it on harder to get it done. Maybe some have to die. Maybe some have to be punished severely. Maybe some have to have their food and water taken away. Maybe some have to suffer plagues. Now, isn't that what he's going to do with most of the church? He's going to bring out a 10% remnant who are poor in spirit, who are willing to be taught. Now, when he does that, will they all agree on everything? No, they won't. I kid you not. They will not already have all knowledge. They will not already know, understand all the truth. When they arrive in that place where God stirs them to come, they will not all agree. Guarantee. What they will have seen will be probably some miracles, some things that are undeniably God's hand with a certain group of people, and they will respond and be stirred to come there. That's what they'll see. But will everything have been changed in their mind? All the disagreements? All the different understanding? No. See, knowledge puffs up and works against us so often. First Corinthians 13 opens with that. Knowledge puffs up. It gives us spiritual pride. We want to spread our knowledge and our vast and unabounded wisdom to others instead of being in a teachable, learning mode. Get rid of the spiritual pride and be willing to be taught rather than to teach. You see, it's so easy for spiritual pride and us to be lifted up and puffed up in our knowledge to think we ought to be teachers. We ought to be ministers. We ought to be evangelists. We ought to be apostles or whatever it is we desire to be. To influence others even without office. But you know, any time a human being thinks they should be promoted or recognized or their great wisdom and understanding recognized, they have a problem. Only people should be promoted who don't think they should be promoted. Now, in worldwide, a great deal of promotion came from polishing boots and things of that ilk. Currying up to the ministers to get favors, to become deacons, to become elders, to become whatever people desired. There was a lot of politics played. Because those people, for whatever reason, thought they ought to be promoted. That was rooted in pride and vanity 
It was not rooted in being poor in spirit. In reality, anyone who truly is qualified to be promoted should not be expecting promotion at all. Because of his honest, true assessment of self is, I am poverty-stricken. I am not like God. I am poverty-stricken in spirit. Why would he even think he ought to be promoted? Why would he? Remember those days when it was time for ordinations to occur and people would wonder, is it going to be me this time? And got so disappointed when it was someone else. Why did we think we deserved it? I remember sitting on pins and needles at graduation time in Pasadena. After all, I was student body president. I was choir, uh, corral president. I was a star on the basketball team. I was smart. I was handsome. I was bigger than life. I was going to change the world. I was everything every AC, dumb, stupid, wet behind the ears student thought he was and wasn't. And I was greatly anticipating to see if I was going to be ordained. And they were going to send me to North Dakota to pastor churches, having barely turned 22 years of age and been such a luminous star on the ambassador campus. And someone discerned that attitude in me, and instead of making me a 22-year-old preaching elder over two churches, thank God for you people who are in North Dakota, they decided at the last minute to send me to Florida under a guy who was mean. And they told him, I found out later, put the screws to him. And he knew how. I could not do anything right. I could not say anything right. I could not think anything right. That's what he told me. And in retrospect, he was right. I was green and wet behind the ears. Didn't know much. And I certainly needed some humbling. And they sent me to an expert. There were a lot of those in those days. I was still ordained a local elder, and shouldn't have been, really. And looking back, was too green and too young. One of the youngest ever ordained, perhaps by only by a few months. And then they quit that. Then they sent them out, I think, from about that time on. I don't know whether anybody got ordained at graduation after that or not, unless they were older people. They'd send them out as assistants for some years before they could get ordained. Maybe I helped change the policy. <laughs> John Hill and Ted Armstrong had a lot of rules made because of them, and most of the rules had already been made by that time I got there but I might have been partially responsible for a little thou shalt not. I don't know. But, you know, we're all susceptible, brethren. We all 
very easily come to have spiritual pride, vanity, ego, and think we're something and get lifted up and think that we have better understanding than someone else. And you know, where does that come from? It comes from comparing ourselves among ourselves. And that is not wise. You know, you can compare your background, your understanding, your experiences with other people, and you can always make yourself come out pretty good if you want to, can't you? It's when you compare yourself with God that you find out, hey, there are some problems. See, that's what God used on Job. Job. Look at what God put Job through at the hands of Satan the devil. Do anything you want to him except kill him. All right. And boy, did he put him through it. Just for the express purpose of Job seeing that there was a vast gulf between himself and God. That's what that whole exercise was. We make the mistake of not comparing ourselves to God and therefore feeling poverty-stricken in spirit we compare ourselves to each other and we come off okay in our analysis. And that constitutes spiritual pride and it's not something God can work with. We have to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, recognize that the standard is way up here and thereby be humbled and feel poverty. Now when you truly, honestly compare yourself with Jesus Christ, and him not saying a word when he was accused, and he hadn't done it. He hadn't done anything they accused him of. And he despised the shame and hung on the stake for our sins. That is the highest standard that you can possibly imagine. Right there. The very highest standard. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you begin to feel pretty low and poverty-stricken spiritually when you compare yourself to that, right? There's no comparison. It's just when we compare ourselves with each other that we get into trouble. Compare yourself with God, and you will become poor in spirit. And once you become teachable and humble and willing to be taught and listen, then God has something he can work with. That is the very first thing he brought up in Matthew 5. If you aren't humble, if you are not teachable, if you think, I have the answers, you're in trouble. When you recognize you don't even know all the questions, much less all the answers, compared to God, not to the preacher or to your neighbor or anybody else, but to God, then you'll be humble before God and you'll also be humble toward your neighbor. And when your neighbor says, you know, boy, I have trouble bringing this up, but... And you say, what? Is there something I can learn? Is there something you can help me with? Is there something I ought to pray about and change? When you can come to have that attitude, God can begin to work with you. That's what He's after with all of us. When we turn to Him with our whole heart, utterly committed, and fear and tremble before His Word, then he can begin the process of turning us into kings and priests and teachers for the rest of this poor, sin-sick world. That's when he can work with us. That's what he had to get across 
first to his disciples. Lesson one. Now, is love more important than poor in spirit? Yeah, it's the greatest thing. But unless you become contrite and humble, God's love cannot flow through you because there's pride and vanity and ego in the way. So, the first lesson isn't love. The first lesson is humility and poverty of spirit. And once we get that lesson, then it opens the channel for other things to flow. So, I've taken a lot of time on this, and I didn't even get into my notes, my other scriptures. I've got 20 or 30 here, but we'll see where it goes next week. But I felt it worth spending some time on, because if we don't have the right attitude... It doesn't make any difference what wonderful knowledge we might receive because without the right attitude, it'll go to waste. And not only that, it becomes dangerous to us because knowledge that is not acted on can put you in the lake of fire. And that isn't where we want to go. We want to go to the kingdom of God. So blessed are they that know that they are poor in spirit and humble, teachable, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.